Good morning. Welcome to Eagle Church. So great to have you. Hey, just a, a quick story from, you know, last week we did that song for the first time. I remember, I know several of you stood up here. It uh, was one of those moments where we just sensed, hey, you might have needed a miracle. You needed a breakthrough in your own heart and life and situation, circumstance you were going through. And I got an email uh, from a member of the congregation this week, and it was a uh, Yet with her permission, I get to share. It's a young couple. They haven't been married that long. Um, They're struggling, infertility stuff, and been really, really challenging, several miscarriages. And um, she wasn't in the room. She was at home. And um, she had had a really difficult doctor's appointment just a few days before um, Sunday last week. And there's some of the statements. She said, the doctor said, there's a dangerous amount of fluid suddenly building up in your abdomen around the baby. Um, chest and head filling up with fluid. You have a less than 10% chance of this baby surviving. Um, You need to prepare yourself for another miscarriage, is basically what the doctor was explaining to her. And um, she came, um, flipped on service Sunday morning, was watching. She felt like the song, here's her words, I felt like the song was meant uh, for me, for us, because it was filled with so much hope. So fast forward, that was last Sunday. Tuesday, she goes for her follow-up doctor appointment in the scan, says, we had our follow-up scan on Tuesday to see if we indeed had a miscarriage, and the doctor was shocked to tell us that they couldn't find any traces of remaining fluid built up in the baby, and everything else was measuring on track. Here, <laughs> Hear this statement. Our baby was bouncing around and waving hello. <laughs> we were speechless. It really was a miracle. That's our God, you know. He still works miracles. He moves mountains. We praise God that he's preserving a life and a womb, even in the midst of all the challenges that she's been going through and they've been going through. And, and just for calling out from a place like the scripture, you call out to God from whatever place you are. Like the song was written in a context of a young couple walking into a hospital saying, we need a miracle. And... Um, I'm sure this isn't the only story of stuff that happened, but we'd love to hear from you. So if you've got your own story of how God's moving and touching and stirring in your heart, whether it's your physical body, we welcome Jay and Kelly Kellogg back to church. Kelly, thank you so much for your testimony of faith. Through You remember all of us praying for Kelly Kellogg? She's back in church. How about that, ladies and gentlemen? So. Kelly has been battling. She spent 19 days in the ICU. She's got her own story she can tell you all about, but her and Jay just calling out to God and trusting that the Lord has more for her life. And here she is in God's house worshiping. You've got your own stories, right? Whether it could be physical, relational, emotional, financial, whatever it is, we'd love to hear it because we believe the God we worship and serve is a miracle-working, mountain-moving God. Amen? And we've been spending the whole month talking about this theme of consecration. We've declared August the month of consecration. An invitation to the Lord to consecrate the whole of your life to Him. Consecrate your heart, consecrate your family, consecrate your finances, consecrate the house of God, consecrate the people of God, consecrate the priests, consecrate the Levites. Eighty-four times in the Bible it says, consecrate yourself to the Lord. Now listen, I know this isn't like a like in a common everyday vocabulary word, like somebody says, hey, how's it going? What you been working on? Oh, I'm just, you know, consecrating myself. It sounds like you need to go to a doctor or something, like. 
Sounds intense, it sounds over the top, but it's a really important concept to God. And it comes with this idea of an exclusivity to it, like that your heart and your life are set apart for Him and His purposes alone. I've entitled today, Hold Nothing Back. And so at the core of consecration is this idea that we're going to release the last 10%. You know, the hardest places, the most deeply entrenched places, the stuff we like to cling most tightly to, the last 10%, Lord, that's what today is about. If you have a note sheet with you, um, if you've received it on the way in, by the way, everyone right now, uh, we need to get one of these in everyone's hands. So everybody needs a consecrate envelope and something to write with near you. Ushers will come down the aisle, just raise your hand, they tried to catch you on the way in the door. Everyone needs an envelope, young or old in the room. And everyone needs something to write with near them. So let me let you know where the message is going today. In this month of consecration, just keep your hands up, the ushers will get to you. In this month of consecration, I think that it's important that we do some things with our bodies that reinforce what God's doing in our soul. Are you with me? So sometimes you got to do something physically to kind of represent what's going on internally and spiritually. And so today... This cross is set up in an appropriately kind of confrontational posture, like we've got to deal with this cross. And so what we want to do is I'm going to lead us to a place at the end of the message where we're going to go to the cross and go to the communion tables. Between now and then, here's what I'd like you to do. Inside this envelope is a blank index card. I would like you to write some words, some phrases, draw a picture a scripture, something that represents the work of the Spirit of God in your heart and life during this month of consecration. What's been going on? What's the Lord been stirring up? Has it been a place, uh, you know, like something inside of you where it's like, you know, I just know this is an area that's a wholehearted yes God wants me to say to Him, which cascades into thousands of different no's from that. Maybe it's something in that space. Maybe, you remember we talked about the first week, we're consecrated to a person for a purpose with a power. Maybe it's, you want to write on here where you need the power of heaven to rest on your life in a way. You're dealing with some stuff and you just need the power of God. Maybe that's what you want to write on here. Or last week we talked about the three movements of consecration, cleansing, sacrifice, and dedication. Maybe what you want to write on here is a work of cleansing, Something that you know, maybe there's some space of compromise that's been going on in your heart. Something you know has been out of bounds with the Lord. It needs to be brought back under His reign and rule. And you want to write on here some of that. What needs to be cleansed, flushed out of the drainage tiles of our hearts. Maybe you want to write that. Or just in general, maybe this wants to embody kind of the last 10%. Those places that are a little more deeply entrenched where you know God's saying, I need you to loosen the grip and release this here. Whatever it is, You have permission between now and the end of the message. Spend some time writing, drawing, capturing in your heart what is it that the Lord's been stirring. Then stick it in the envelope, seal the envelope, and at the end of the message, we're going to walk those envelopes to the cross. The envelopes that are there represent some of our children's workers and student workers and some of our volunteers who are serving today. We had a little time this morning beforehand. That's their envelopes. And just so you know, nobody's reading these envelopes. Nobody's going to see them. Nobody's going to open them. This is between you and the Lord. They're all going to be shredded, okay? This is a you and the Lord thing. So be candid, be honest, be clear, right? Go the last 10% with that. And then we're going to take from the cross, and we're going to go to the tables together. So that's where we're headed. In your notes, you'll see this quote that kind of frames 
where we're going with the text today out of Second Chronicles 14. Listen to John Tyson. He's a pastor in New York. He says, if we were to honestly lay our hearts before the Lord, I believe He would be more interested in the parts we are holding back than the parts we've already given. Like all relationship, God wants full commitment. In the same way your wife appreciates when you buy her flowers, but would much rather have you stop looking at porn. God wants to get a hold of the things we hold back. Okay, this is what Jesus is pushing into in Mark 10 when he has a conversation with the rich young ruler. You remember that dialogue in Mark 10? So there's a dialogue, right? This rich young ruler comes and he wants to talk about all the things, all the commandments he's been holding and keeping. And Jesus isn't as interested in what he's been keeping as in what he's been holding back. And it's what Ronald Rollheiser, he puts it this way, commenting on that text. He says, in essence, the rich young man is telling Jesus, I have given up almost everything for God. What more must I do? Jesus' answer is simple and direct. Give up the rest. Give up the rest. That's the heart of consecration, church, right there. It's a give up the rest movement. Give it up. Release it. Go the last 10%. It's this loosening of the grip. It's a wholehearted surrender. Everything I have is yours. Every square inch of my heart is yours. And so the invitation has been and continues to be, consecrate yourself to the Lord. Consecrate the whole of your life to the God who gave you life and the Savior who gave you grace. Go all in, give up the rest. That's the declaration today. Hold nothing back. And the story we're going to look at today in 2 Chronicles 14 is a story of a king who got a, he had a really amazing start in consecration. And he found out what we all are going to find out. To walk into the consecrated life, you're going to have to deal with something that is relentless, that just doesn't give up very easily, and you're going to have to confront the kingdom of self on the journey of the consecrated life. And today I want us to see how there's this dailiness of consecration that comes. We're going to look at two things in dealing with the kingdom of self. Self is a poor savior and an empty God. We're going to see that. And that self is to be consecrated, not relied upon. So Asa, 2 Chronicles 14, Asa is king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, he's reigned for 41 years. The first 35 years, so 35 of his 41 years, here's kind of the commentary of Asa's reign and his leadership. Look at 2 Chronicles 14, verse 2 and following. Here's what it says. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars in the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to obey his laws and commands. So you see the, you see the language there in the text, remove, cut down, smash. Do you see that? Here's a picture of the Asherah pole. So this comes from a Canaanite goddess that they believe was like a, was like a mother goddess for them called Asherah. And they would carve out a pole that was usually from a tree, and they would form devotion and allegiance to this pole. And then they would set up like these sacred altars and stones in the high places. So in your Old Testament, when you see God calling his people to go to the high places and remove the poles and the sacred stones, this is kind of what they were dealing with. This represented an idolatry, a place in the heart that just began to occupy some space. They began to bow down to some other gods. This represented some things that God wanted torn down. He wanted smashed. He wanted destroyed. And Asa steps in, and the first part of his leadership is he begins to tear these things down. 
He begins to redirect the hearts of the people. Which parenthesis here, by the way, this cross, when you come to it today, I want you to see on the back side of it, there's all these little pieces of like, it looks like kind of broken up porcelain stuff. I want to give you a little backdrop. Some of you were around during that time. This was several years ago, maybe going on 10 years. We had a Sunday morning where we set up some ways for people to write their kind of idolatry places, their high places, their sacred stones, the stuff that they knew God wanted smashed and destroyed in their own lives. And we had a whole thing going on with that. And we had some things set up on the side. And we had, it was a crazy Sunday. We had hammers. We had people like smashing stuff. We had stuff flying all over the place. It was, and you know what we did? We took some pieces of all those broken down high places and we glued them to this cross. And it represents just kind of that, this. So I think it's kind of cool that it ended up being a day like today, where we're going to consecrate ourselves afresh. It's what Asa was calling the people to do. He's basically saying, hey, we're not going to go the direction we've been going. We're not going to worship as we've been worshiping. In an environment charged with compromise, Asa, he pulls the people in the opposite direction to consecration. That's what consecration is. It's an equal, if not more passionate pull in the opposite direction of compromise. And in a cultural moment, inside and outside the church that's filled with compromise, God's people are called to consecrate, to say we're going to double down on wholehearted surrender and allegiance to King Jesus. That's a response in an atmosphere of compromise. That's where Ace is at. And it's an amazing start. He says, we're not going to bow down to what we've been bowing down to. Tear those high places down. We are going toward Yahweh, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. We're dedicating ourselves to him. And so then look at verse 9. What happens? Zerah the Cushite marches out against them with an army of thousands upon thousands. That's just like every Tuesday back in that day, by the way. So when the kings are going on, a bunch of surrounding nations are usually upset. They want to destroy the Israelite people. They're wanting to wipe them out. And so the kings are always dealing with this. Look at verse 11. Asa calls to the Lord his God and says, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against us. So you see the circumstances here are like powerless against the mighty, and Asa's response is, no, Lord, we rely on you. And I think that's some of what was going on last week when several of you stood up during the song, We Need a Miracle. I think you were standing to say, you know what, Lord? Even if the doctors don't have answers, even if my spouse doesn't have answers, even if my coworkers don't have it, friends, family, even if the whole bunch of people don't have answers, I'm standing because I need God to step in. I need God to do something. I need God to meet me here. That's where Asa's at. He's like, this doesn't look very good, Lord. And we have a, by the way, Asa had 300,000 people in his army. So he could have relied on the strength of man, so to speak, but he doesn't. He says, you know what? I'm not going to turn to my military leaders, although I'm sure they had a role. I'm not going to turn to all the generals. I'm going to say this first. Notice the first move as a leader. This is spiritual leadership. His first move is to say, Lord, it's in your name that we're going to come against that vast army. So Asa chooses dependence on God. Hear this, dependence on God over the accomplishments of man. That's a picture of consecration. When you begin to take your first move towards the circumstances of your life to the Lord and dependence on Him and less to the people around us in our lives. So this is the action of a consecrated king and a consecrated nation. Like 2 Chronicles 14 represents a, what happens when leaders and people decide to consecrate themselves to the Lord? This stuff happens. High places get torn down, altars get destroyed, people get reset, centered on the Lord. 
Armies get pushed back. All kinds of armies get defeated against them. This is what's going on. For 36 years, this is what's going on with Asa's leadership. Seeking God, prioritizing God's presence, calling out to the Lord when the circumstances looked overwhelming. They were living in a posture of overall dependence on God for 36 years. And then the relentless assault of the kingdom of self comes hard for Asa. Turn your Bibles a couple chapters ahead and you're going to see now where this thing goes. So in his, notice if you have an NIV Bible, it says chapter 16 is called Asa's last years. Look at verse 2. Asa then took silver and gold. So what happens is another army, another group, another people trying to come and wipe him out. This time it's Basha, northern kingdom of Israel, coming for him. And so he decides, notice, he takes silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace and sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Now, wait a minute. You need to compare 2 Chronicles 14, verse 11, where the first move is call out to the Lord as God. Lord, we desperately need your help. Now his first move in chapter 16, verse 2, 36 years later, is to go into the Lord's temple, not to call out to God, but to get some silver and gold and to form a bribe against the king of Aram. You see where this is going? Something's begun to shift inside of him. Verse 3, let there be a treaty between you and me, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Bashah, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. So Asa bribes off Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, and he forms an alliance with him to get him off of his back. And now listen, now the Lord's commentary, the Lord's going to step in he sees all that's going on. Look at verse 7. At that time, Hanani, verse, the seer. Seer is an Old Testament word for prophet. So the prophet in the seer's role was to keep the character of God before the kings when those who were occupying the office maybe weren't as interested in paying attention to God's character and God's ways. They were a little too absorbed with their own selfish ambitions and things they wanted to have happen. It's a good thing we don't struggle with that today, but just might imagine if we might be in environments where those who are holding some positions of leadership are less concerned about how the character of God would guide our leadership and direction and perhaps need a voice like a seer, like a prophet, like the people of God in a nation like ours to hold its leaders, to hold the character of God before the leadership. That's an important role. And right here, a seer, a little guy named Hanani is going to go to the king, and he's going to represent to the king what God's heart is. And those, you can imagine how that might have gone. King of Judah says to him, because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God. So that tells you what was going on in his heart. It tells you what we was doing when he was in the temple. God saw into the heart and said, he's not interested in calling out to me at all. He's just interested in like buying off and forming a treaty with this neighboring nation and trying to do it in his own wisdom and strength. See, he says that. Verse 8 says, we're not, we're not the Cushites and Libyans, a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet, when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. Do you see that? Two times he uses the word rely. It comes from this word that means like lean upon, trust for support. So it's this sense of, hey, you used to rely on me. How'd that work for you? How'd it go? Hey, Asa, when you relied on the Lord, what's the track record here? Well, the track record was, hey, when the Cushites came against you, the Lord stepped in and fought that battle with you and for you, and you had victory. 
And when the Libyans were marching against you, what happened? You called on the Lord. You depended on Him. You were fasting. You were praying. You were trusting in God. You were leaning into me. You were relying on me. Do you see that? Say, Asa, do you remember? Which, by the way, parentheses here, we all develop a sacred history with God. You have that. Even young people in the room in your younger years and those of you who have lived more decades of your life, you've got a history with God where He's shown up where he's come through, where he's demonstrated, I hear you, I see you, I know you. In the waiting, right? He's going to get the glory. In the breaking, you've got history. In the breakthrough, you've got history. We've got a new young couple in the church now. They've got another moment of sacred history. Can you imagine what the Lord's going to do with this baby as this baby grows? Can you imagine the day we get to dedicate this child on the stage? That's sacred history as a congregation we build. Do you see that? We have that together. God is faithful, God is good, God is trustworthy, God is able. Which then speaks into Asa. Asa, then why would you begin to lean on the arm of self when you've got the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth with a track record of trustworthiness ready to step in for your life? Man, isn't that a good word for us today? How about for us as a church? That this is a time church where we don't, we're not leaning into the arm of self. We're not leaning into the wisdom of man. The circumstances we're thrust in right now, as a church, in a country, at this cultural moment, right now, listen, we're not going to whiteboard our way out of this situation. Are you with me? Our country, it's beyond the whiteboard. It's beyond the wisdom and ingenuity of man to get us from where we are to where we need to be. You know what we need? We need God. We need a movement of His Spirit to fall on this nation in a way that will mark it as it has done before. Our nation is a history of spiritual awakenings. If you want to track the history of the country of the United States of America, you have to track it with spiritual awakenings at its core. You got to go back and say, this is, what, this is how the nation was founded. This is how the prominent schools in our country were founded. This is how the institutions that serve the people were founded. They were founded on the backside of a movement of the Spirit of God upon a people who decided to do what Asa was doing for 35 years, which is basically to say, Lord, we're going to rely on you. We're going to look to you. We're going to trust you. We're not going to trust in the arm of the flesh. We're going to look to the wisdom of people. So why would you be doing that? Or Asa, why are you taking some money out of the treasury? And why are you buying off Ben Haddad? Why would you do that? Why would you look for your support there? Where's the call to prayer? Where's the call to seek God? Where's the call to consecration? If, I can hear the Lord saying, if I had done this before for you, will I not do it again? Perhaps a good word for us today. If I have not, for you as a church, for you as a people, for you as an... If I have not demonstrated time and time again, I can and I will and I'm able, will I not yet again? And this is the setting for the most often repeated verse in 2 Chronicles 16. I suspect most people don't know many of the verses inside of Chronicles 16, but this one is repeated often. Look at verse 9. It's in this setting where verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Now, how many times have you heard that quoted before? If you've been in church circles for any length of time. But you can't stop there. There's one more sentence. Look. 
You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you'll be at war. That one's not hung over the mantle, that part. I was noticed like if I see it in homes or I see it in art, you know, displays or whatever, it's only the first sentence. But notice, for 35 years, it was the first sentence of verse 9 that characterized Asa's leadership. The eyes of the Lord are looking. He's looking for people whose hearts are his. He wants whose hearts are his. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. He says, I got my man. Asa, 35 years. And then the last six years, it became the second part. It's 36 years, 35, 36 years and deep dependence on God. The last five or six years, he just began to do what the Bible calls, the Bible word for what Asa did, which is said, foolish. He began to rely on himself. He forms a treaty. He tosses Hanani, the seer, in prison. And then he starts brutally oppressing the people. That's all in verse 10. And then I want you to see this. Hang with me here. Verse 12. Here's what happens. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease, though his disease was severe... Even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Underline that. There's a very telling statement. And he lives for two more years like that, and he dies. Now, physicians and those of you in the medical community, we are super grateful for you and all that you do. We're thankful for the role that you play. But hear this. The physicians do not occupy the office of Yahweh God. They have a role. Certainly make the doctor's appointment, yes. But don't do it at the, don't do it, don't just make the doctors and look to the doctors to be your God. And You're supposed to make the doctor's appointment and call out to the Lord. You're supposed to lean into God. You're supposed to trust that God's going to make a way. And here's Asa with a 35, 36-year track record of God coming through, of God breaking in, of God rescuing, of God healing. He did it for 35-plus years in his life. Now he gets some disease with his feet, and he just goes to the doctor. You see what? Something, something has shifted in his heart to the point, right? When an army forms against him, he goes in, hey, just form a treaty, bribe him off. When disease happens in his body, go to the doctors, get a bunch of meds. Listen, doctors, medication, all have a role, but not at the exemption of seeking and centering dependence on God. That's the principle here, and do you see it? It's the gravitational pull of self-reliance, church. That's what you see. Do you see this? There's a gravitational pull in our fallen condition called self-reliance. Have you felt it? Just keep living. If you're not dealing with it, you will be. The pull inside of our fallen, sinful nature, breathing the air that we're breathing, having a real enemy formed against us, the world, the flesh, and the devil aligned this way, to get you to rely on yourself, to go what Augustine called incurvatus, to have your life turn in on itself. That's the pull. Like, you don't, you don't have to work at that. If you just, like, coast along in life, that's where you're going to coast. You're going to coast along to what A.W. Tozer called, you're going to live a life filled with hyphenated sins. Self-reliance, self-indulgence, self-love, self-hyphen, you fill in the blank. Self-dependent, self-sufficient, self-hyphen, you in, fill in the blank. If the kingdom of self isn't consecrated to the Lord, here's what Asa's story reminds us of. It will demand an allegiance that will eventually land in the territory called Incurvatus. That's where it's going to land. Asa's whole life turns in on itself. 
35 plus years of seeing God come through, and then he dies disease at his feet, sitting in, at a physician's offices, only turning to them for help, and then that's how he exits. That's the legacy he leaves. He doesn't leave a legacy of consecration. He leaves the last part of his life. How you exit is how you're remembered, and Asa is remembered as one who mainly turned and relied on himself, handling in his own wisdom and strength, not depending on anyone or anything but himself. Kind of decide, I'm going to do what I want, how I want, when I want. He looks in the mirror, he says, the mirror is going to determine it. So from all of that, two principles, and then we'll move to our response time. The two principles I put in your notes. Self is a poor savior and an empty God. Church, do you see this? Self is a poor savior. Listen, we're, bre- we're in an environment now, we're breathing the air that's just you do you, self at the center, God at the margins. And revival is God's put at the center and God begins to define reality. Self at the center, ask everyone and everything else to bend towards your reality. How's that working for us? We're even struggling with the basic definitions of personhood and marriage and life. and We're struggling with the very basics because, as the Bible describes, when you do what's right in your own eyes, you're left with what the Bible word for it is foolishness and chaos and confusion, which is why it's so exhausting for our young people today to try to navigate the environment they're in, which is why, students, we double down our prayer efforts for you as you step into the arenas that you're stepping into, that you can do it from a pace that's grounded in reality. Students, you know the most, like, the most important step you could make towards reality is yes to Jesus. Do you know that? Like when you say yes to Jesus, you are taking a step towards the way things that are supposed, that they're supposed to be. Dallas Willard says re- reality is what you can count on. That's a, like you can count on Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. You can count on him. Self, I promise you that. Self has an end point. It's a poor savior and an empty God. We're not smart enough, wise enough, strong enough. We cannot be our own savior. And we certainly, self, cannot navigate out of the current moment we find ourselves in. Church and culture at large. Sure helps us understand why we're, so, we're struggling with anxiety and depression. We're stressed out. We struggle with chronic fatigue. Do you see why? If you press self to try to be something that self can never be, how exhausting is it to try to set yourself up, create an identity, and then you have to perform and live up to that identity the rest of your life? It's exhausting. It's relentless. Like you're going to end up with chronic fatigue. That's not how God designed you to live. You don't form your own identity. You receive it from the God who gave you life. You're made in the Imago Dei. It's just a better way to live. There's so much more freedom. Instead of you sitting down and creating who you want to be and defining it and tell everyone else to deal with it, and then you have to try to live up and perform to that, that's not the way to live. That's what lands us in the place that we're struggling with as a nation now that you've heard me comment on many times. I think the latest data is the most stressed and anxious nation in the world, end quote. The nation who has the most technological advancements and who has the most resources available for Christianity, that nation. That tells me there's something off at the center, and I think this is some of what it is. When God gets uprooted and shoved out of the center and self gets put in, I think 2 Chronicles 14, 16 is a window into what happens, which moves into my second point of reflection here is that self is to be consecrated, not relied on. 
Self is made to surrender to the sovereign leadership of Jesus, not to be relied upon and to be trusted in to navigate everything that needs to be navigated in this life. Nope, we're not strong enough or smart enough to be able to do it. This is why Jesus would, in classic Jesus form, he would summarize all these kinds of principles as only Jesus can. Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25. Here's how Jesus said this. It says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, which is a Bible word for follower, learner, come and do life like I'm doing it. You must what? Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Man, that's a great statement for 2023, isn't it? If we really want to find a way through what we're going through, Jesus says, it's not self. Self needs to be consecrated. Self needs to be laid down. Self isn't to be relied upon. It's not to be your Savior or your God. So King Asa, 35, 36 years, consecrated to the Lord, tearing down high places, calling people back to God, worship, surrender, trust in God. What a spiritual leader for 35, 36 years. And then the last five or six, incurvatus, turning, relying on self. It reminds me, it's a, it's a stark, sobering comment, like there's a dailiness to this whole consecration thing. That's why Jesus like, yeah, take up your cross daily. Like, you got to deal with this, not just here, Sunday mornings at 10, but tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, 7 o'clock, staff meeting, what, wherever you're at, whatever, you're, like, there's a dailiness to this journey of the consecrated life. And so, worship team, come on back up. Here's where we're going to lead into a time of response here. So, the invitation this morning, church, is what it's been the whole month. It's to consecrate yourself to the Lord. It's an invitation. You're not consecrating yourself to a set of beliefs, to a doctrine. You're consecrating yourself to a person. Our great God and Savior, as Titus 2 says. We're consecrating ourselves to the Lord because He's worthy. He's worthy of your whole life. The things of this world are not worthy of the whole of your heart being consecrated. As important as your job is, your company is not worthy of the consecration of your life. King Jesus is worthy of the consecration of our life. And he demands, give up the rest. He demands wholeheartedness. Today is about dealing with the casual. No, casual is going aside. We're dealing with the last 10%. We're giving up the rest. That's today. I hope you've had some time to write some stuff. If not, it's a good time to finish it up. So jot some things down on this card. Because the movement of consecration is a cleansing movement. There's some stuff that's got to get flushed out of our hearts. There's a sacrificial movement. We're going to go to the communion table because that's where the power rests for a cleansing work of the Spirit. And then it's a dedication. Consecration at its core is dedicating the whole of our lives to the one who's worthy of it all. So this is the invitation, church. My question for us is, why would we wait one more day? Kind of, why not us? Why not now? 
Maybe you've been wrestling through a lot of things this month. Several of you have in conversations. I think the Spirit's stirring up a lot in all of our hearts. So today, let's seal it today. Put it down on there. Go the last 10%. Give up the rest today. Like right now, just... And then come together. Come with your spouse, your family, your friends. Come walk up here together. Lay these things down at this cross together. Let that be a physical, visual, look at like just like an act of consecration. And then make your way over to the communion table. Tables are on the sides here. You don't have to be a member of Eagle to take communion here, but you do need to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. This is a precursor to that. And if you're not ready for that, it's fine. Take the time and space. Sort it out here. You can take communion for the first time. You can say, Jesus, my whole life's yours. Maybe for the first time, it's become clear to you that your life has not been his. Maybe today's that day. Those of you at home, you're not here. Now's your time. Maybe you can grab an envelope or something at home right now. It'll be a good time. Create your own little space. Create your own little altar area. Grab some elements at home. But participate with us in this. You say yes to Jesus for the first time, you take communion. But for those of you who are followers of Jesus, this is our time. These elements represent the relational dynamic of consecration. We're consecrated to a living Christ who gave himself. The consecrated life is available because Christ came and died. That we as a people might be his very own. It's unbelievable. So here's what we're doing today, church. Do you realize, like, this is the work of God's people. Like, we practice this today. Like, we work these muscles today. We're training right now. Training for the day when we're going to be reigning with him in glory. Do you see that? Training for reigning. That's what all this is. We're working the muscles of consecration and communion and dedication and sacrifice and cleansing. All of that's what? For the day we're training now, for the day we're reigning and ruling with him in glory. That's what we're doing. That's what God's people do. So stand with me. Let's pray together. Jesus, it's been a month. Some really amazing things I think you've been doing from miraculous answers to prayer of a baby in a womb that's healed to chains falling off of addictions the stuff going on at home. To some returning, maybe from those who've been living in a distant country a long way from the Lord, that this has been a month where some people are coming back, coming back to you and all the things in between. So Lord, here we are. We are your people. We hear your invitation. Consecrate yourselves to the Lord. We hear it. And we come now to this cross and we go to these tables. And here's our act of worship. This is our act of worship. We love you. We trust you. This is our give up the rest moment right here. We're giving it up. Pour out your spirit.